I think that point about automation, about just picking some of those hugely repetitive, non-value-add tasks, um, automating them and giving that time back to um, you know to people within schools. I think for me, that's that gets me out of bed. It's really you know really the ability to change change the school environment. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the EdTech Podcast, where we aim to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. And we've been doing that for five and a half years now. If you've been with us that whole time, huge congratulations, and uh, you should get an award for stamina as a listener. And if you're new this week, then welcome also. We love all of our listeners and uh, hope you get something interesting out of this episode. And I'm pleased to now have my recording equipment back after I lent it to a friend to go and do interviews with learners and young people at the London Transport Museum. So I've now got my trusty recorder back in my hands and feeling very good about it. I'm actually recording this intro from London, where I'm attending the Learning Technology Awards. Um, If you've entered the awards, good luck. Um, And we will obviously update who does win those awards on our Twitter feed at Podcast EdTech. Um, There is some further awards news. So I've just finished judging for the Reimagine Education Awards. And this gave me much reason for hope and optimism, um, as there were so many excellent programmes in project-based learning, local problem solving and computational thinking. And I can't give away much more as that may allow you to deduce which projects I'm talking about. And that would be awfully wrong. But go and have a look at all the entrants because there's some fabulous work there. Um, And well done again to anyone who entered. Some good news for you listeners, because of my excellent judging skills, I have two full-priced $300 full access tickets to the Reimagine Education Conference, which runs uh, December the 6th to the 10th this year, 2021, and welcomes 200 vice chancellors, deans, CIOs and policymakers from world-class universities and the wider higher ed sector and innovation um, part of that sector. So if that describes you and you're listening in from a university and you would like to come along to the Reimagine uh, Education Conference, then do get in touch and drop me a line at the edtechpodcast at gmail.com and we'll get those tickets to you. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. And finally, to round up the awards news, the Education Resources Awards are also open And these awards highlight the quality and diversity of educational products and resources, excellent educational establishments and the most dedicated members of the teaching profession and supplier industry all working together to encourage the very best in education. Um, So if you want to showcase what kind of amazing partnership work you've been doing, go and check out the Education Resources Awards. And I believe, if I remember correctly, those close in February. So you can start gathering your information and getting that all together now. Okay, now, school leaders, listen up, because it's now time for this week's episode. And thinking about the idea of change as a constant in our lives and agility as the superpower in which we may swat away all those pesky demands 
and allow ourselves the time to focus on what is important and find a way through all of the noise. In this week's episode, I'm in conversation with Simon Freeman, who is the Managing Director for Education with Iris Software Group. You might may know Iris from such products as Parent Mail and others. So Iris uh, provide agile software management software for 12,000 schools in the UK and internationally. Simon has an amazing array of public sector technology experience. And in this episode, we talk about how school leaders can manage the scale of the task ahead when it comes to the role of technology learning and digitally competent leadership within the school environment to create precious time for school plans. We often look at some of these things as technology problems, and I don't think they are. And how to tap into the data within your school. And note here that Simon gets very exasperated about the fact that still so many MIS systems are under lock and key, under desks within schools. So if that's you, I would advise hiding from Simon or maybe you should seek him out and uh, find out why that annoys him and what you can gain from uh, moving to cloud-based systems. So the big message here is release the data and get on board with agile processes. And there's that incredibly rich information that is valuable around, uh, you know, attendance and performance and, and all that good stuff, which is which is locked under a desk. For me, this episode comes at an exciting time when schools are still potentially suffering from a fragmented community group as a result of the pandemic and the variety of experiences that we've all had in terms of being in or out of school and, you know, more or less involved in the communications therein. So I like the idea of a better flow of information and building up that trust again across a cohesive school community. So tell us, dear listeners, how are you navigating change within your school environments? How are you keeping your community together and getting on board with agile processes that work for you? Drop us a voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash the edtech podcast or tweet us at podcast edtech. A quick heads up that there is about a 30 second piece of the recording earlier on when Simon's headset was being very naughty and the audio is a bit fuzzy. After that section, it is perfect there on in. So bear that in mind. Enjoy the recording. Uh, Tons of learnings from multi-academy trust leaders that Simon's working with. Here we go. Great. So, um, Simon, fantastic to have you on the EdTech podcast. Welcome. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Uh, Simon, you're the Managing Director for Education for Iris Software Group. And if I've done my homework correctly, you started there this June 2021. I did. Yeah, coming up to five months now. So yes, I am been there five months and a, a very exciting and a steep learning curve it's been in, in those five months. That, yeah, that's quite that's quite the turning point, isn't it? When you start a new role, because I think the first month's always that information collecting, intelligence gathering, and then it's the implementation of strategy and that kind of thing. Exactly. And I have to say, I'm, I mean, this is my first dedicated education role. So the technology bit I'm quite comfortable with, and you know, I've got quite a long grounding in technology in the public sector. Uh, but its application into education, I mean, it is 
probably I think the most exciting area where I think technology can make some dramatic changes to society but um, yeah it's been a steep learning curve so not only have I been learning the business I've also been learning quite a bit about education as well. Yeah and what a time to join because I mean um, everything has completely changed in in education in terms of the role of technology in the last 18 months or so so you know a great time to to take that leap. Indeed. And uh, my previous role, I was working in, in local government for the last uh, kind of three years or so. And, you know, there's quite a lot of parallels, I think, of the adoption of technology and how, you know, there was this kind of, oh, my gosh, moment. How are we going to continue to deliver uh, services and and support people and support um, you know, residents, you know, uh, through through the pandemic. And I can see quite a lot of parallels with how education has had to you know handle some of the same challenges and and actually some of the benefits I think that have come out the back of it um so yeah r- really interesting parallels to uh, to observe definitely I mean just on that point and then then we'll go into some of my questions because it's just really fascinating um bouncing back and forth I guess the opportunity cost was slightly more critical say sort of 10 15 years ago when I'm just thinking some of the legacy systems it would have been much more sort of big investment in hardware whereas perhaps now through the changes that can happen through the cloud with software you know you can think okay we'll we'll invest in this and there is that idea that you can tweak as you go along as opposed to it being like this is what you get and it's a monolith and that's it yeah yeah Uh, and um completely recognize that and i think uh when i started one of my last jobs which is actually working with central government and we're talking probably 2016 2017 so not not that long ago um one of the procurement exercises we were running we were proposing going to aws as one of the hosted platforms and there was this absolute aversion to using uh you know cloud hosted infrastructure we don't know where it is right it could be anywhere in the world is it secure um and you know the, the department at the time who i won't name and shame went forwards with a hosted you know host design less than you know, three years later, government's wholesale adoption of, you know, AWS platforms and cloud and Azure and all the rest of it. So I think that that thinking is catching up rapidly. But you know, the concerns at the time were right because the technology hadn't been proven in quite the same way. Um, but I think once, you know, industry demonstrates to users that actually you can have that agility and you can have the security and all the rest of it, um, clearly the benefits are huge then. I've got your bio here. You're driving forward Iris's evolution, leading the education offering and focusing on meeting the needs of senior leadership teams in multi-academy trusts and independent schools. But what I'd love is if you want to introduce yourself, how, how you would go about doing that. So who you are and what you do. Okay, um, so Simon Freeman, I'm actually a mechanical engineer by background. Right? So I'm not quite sure how I've ended up in software, but I'm an engineer by background. And I've probably spent the last 10 years leading applications and technology installations into into public sector, you know, things we just, just talked about. And um, I'm incredibly honoured to be here leading Iris's education business. And, and Iris delivers software and services to over 12,000 schools across the UK and uh, internationally. And uh, as a business, we are passionate about making sure that schools have the tools and technologies, this modern tools and technologies that can get them away from the, you know, the constraints of software that, that probably existed for back in the 90s uh, and really unlocking some of the potential that comes with that software. And um, that's what led me into this business. And uh, I'm incredibly excited to be uh, responsible as part of that team for, for leading that initiative. I've got here you worked across many different sectors but all in service excellence so we talked a little bit about some of those just just previously but what was the most eye-opening experience when you've worked previously across defense or your international (laughs) roles or local government um 
I've got a couple actually. Um, I spent a little bit of time in, in the Ministry of Defence um, and I remember sitting down and talking to one of the Oracle uh, reps at the time and Oracle runs a big chunk of the back office payroll for the Ministry of Defence. Uh, and he just casually said, you do know that you guys have got the largest single Oracle implementation running payroll anywhere in Europe. And there was this kind of stony silence in the room where we thought, and we know how complicated it is. <laughs> so yeah, that was quite... Um, uh, that was quite quite a moment. Um, and in local government, actually, um, I think at the start of the pandemic, seeing how local government across the UK did a flipping amazing job in adopting technology and shifting some of their services online. And maybe we'll touch on some of this later in the podcast. But um, there was always this discussion, and I think it existed across government, where there was potentially the digitally excluded people who couldn't didn't have access to you know smartphones and technology um and therefore everything actually needed to be face to face as well in order to embrace and what we saw was actually there wasn't that digital exclusion and that people very quickly adopted um uh, adopted those uh you know those those routes by which they needed to communicate and in fact it ended up bringing in many people who would otherwise not have been engaged in uh, in services and um, uh, and being able to access services they wouldn't have got either through language support mm-hmm. because we were able to translate things into different languages or that they weren't physically able to get there and, and, and receive the services and they could get them digitally. So, um, yes, I've seen some very interesting and exciting uh, uh, sort of projects with um, with government and, and that kind of stuff over, over the last few years. I think that's really, really challenging assumptions. So, you know, I guess you get these prevailing narratives and, um, yes, there are people that will be penalised by a digital divide, but also you you then engage with other people. So it always takes takes picking apart. Just very quickly on the point about the, the large Oracle project, um, relaying that back to multi-academy trust leaders who may feel sometimes overwhelmed by the scale of the task ahead. How would you use that experience to offer any advice for when you sometimes feel like, oh, this is such a big project and how to sort of tackle that as well? Uh, I think choosing the right partner is absolutely key uh, and making sure that you've done your due diligence and that you've really explored exactly how this is going to work um i mean there's it's really easy for everyone to paint the uh, the brighter future and i think don't nobody disagrees that there is that brighter future available but the steps by which you need to take to get there can be quite you know challenging especially in an organization like a multi-academy trust where there probably isn't the, the significant infrastructure around change and therefore diverting you know critical finance people's times or uh, you know worst case educators times away from what they're supposed to be doing um is really important that you get that planning right and i think working with the right partner who's got the experience who's got the scale who can uh, you know, pull in the necessary resources when inevitably things don't quite go to plan and they can step in and try and help. Um, I think that would be absolutely key. Uh, and the second thing I would say is talk to your peers. And I know this happens brilliantly across the multi-academy trust, but, you know, look, certainly learn from the experiences of others. Um, and there are, you know, inevitably going to be some early adopters and they will get the benefits earlier, but they'll also take some of the risks. And then there'll be some of those people who are, once they see the benefits and, and have a way of mitigating those risks, will be more comfortable about moving along that change curve. Um, so I think those would probably be my my two my two key points. Excellent. So why we kind of got together today was to talk about this idea of constant change. And I think I've had this conversation previously where people talk about 
digital transformation and it's, it's quite appealing to think well you do the project then it's done and as you'll know with your work with local government like there's always more to do um, and and certainly in education as well like you know digital is constantly changing that's constantly having an effect on on us as individuals and in our, our sort of work and in our education as well um, the, the experience of the past 18 months for anyone in the education sector has been hard and tiring and everyone will have also recognise there's been sort of benefits that have come out of it as well. So some of that um, moving to digital processes. But how do we sort of go beyond the comfort of then, you know, ret- returning to this idea that the change has happened and now we're we're back and we're sat in there to kind of embracing the idea that this sort of change is, is constant, but without feeling overwhelmed by it? Any advice on sort of then... Uh, um, embracing that but doing it in a way that doesn't feel chaotic yeah and, and you use that word chaotic at, at, at the end and I think you know in the early days of, of the pandemic it was a bit chaos you know the schools were battling with some really quite frankly old infrastructure you know nobody had had to do a virtual lesson before I mean uh, I think we did a survey of schools a while ago and I think 70% of teachers said that they had not done a virtual lesson a full virtual lesson before the pandemic and uh, and then being able you know having to do that on scale I think it was a bit chaotic and some of the tools and infrastructure that wasn't available early on which is available now um, you know took a little bit of time to, to to arrive and I think as as schools adopted that we can clearly see some of the benefits that's come from it and as we start to return I guess to a slight sense of normality um, I think there's clear advantages in keeping some of that uh, the technology available and you know we talked about digital inclusion a few minutes ago there's always going to be people maybe who can't make it into the classroom for whatever reason well actually you can continue your education and we can continue engaging with you and and some of the knock-on benefits about maybe engaging further with parents and making sure that actually parents are more engaged in um, in children's education as well in a way that they might not have been previously. Yeah. Uh, I think those are huge benefits that have come out of, um, uh, you know, of what we've seen over the, over the last, uh, uh, over the last 18 months or so. But, but to your point about change as well, I think we often look at some of these things as technology problems and I don't think they are. I think their technology obviously has a role to play, but it's much around, the people's behavior and how we change our our processes and and the way that we we use that technology that has as much an impact on whether the technology is successful or or whether it's uh, or whether it doesn't get used in the right way or not. I was talking to a a Matt leader the other day from a a Matt down on the south coast and um, he beautifully articulated the the potential upsides of moving to cloud technology. Uh, they've become um, a map that's taken over a number of schools co- across coastal regions, and therefore the the need to be able to see how those schools are performing uh, on a daily basis across quite remote geographies, and the potential of technology to be able to do that is is huge. And and, and Iris obviously wants to, you know does play a key role in doing that, but the the need to migrate, you know, a number of different schools onto new technology quite rapidly, you know, that's clearly a, a significant change program and a bit of a barrier. And I think it comes back to some of the things we talked about earlier, you know, making sure that you've got the right partners and making sure that you've you kind of dipped your toe in a little bit and you're confident that it can work. Um, uh, and then and then ultimately being able to see the benefits that, that come from the back of it. Um, but the 
uh, certainly what I'm seeing is that there is this huge desire to move to these agile processes and people can start to see the benefits and those benefits have been reinforced as we've gone through the pandemic and come out the other side and, and seen those different operating ways. Um, but I think it's also incumbent on the industry to make that as easy as possible and for you know organizations like Iris to de-risk some of those big change programs and um, and to make sure that that's done safely and it's done successfully and that those benefits of, of the technology does get realized. And, and that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think previously, you know, if, you, if we talk about sort of MIS platforms, I, I guess if you talked about sort of pre and post pandemic, but also how they've evolved is, you know, perhaps previously they were a bit more clunky and now it's about making them modular, making the user feedback something that you can uh, involve into product. Absolutely. And I think you raise MIS there, which is really interesting. I mean, Seventy percent of schools have their MIS, you know, locked under a desk, under the bursar desk somewhere, or you know, in in a cupboard. And and there's that incredibly rich information that is valuable around, uh, you know, attendance and performance and and all that good stuff, which is which is locked under a desk. And the technology exists now to be able to free that up and to inform educators and the leadership teams around much, much better decisions in real time, which can dramatically improve the outcomes for students. And um, I think that shift from, uh, you know, from that kind of on-premises and, and locking that information at the desk into modern cloud tools and uh, and the benefits that can come from that is, is a huge potential. And, and that's what we're doing with EdGen, which is our, um, our, our, our cloud MIS product. And you know, not, you know, I think we're only starting to see the benefits that come from that, including uh, the ability to run reports across multiple sites and to do that in real time uh, and to use the sort of modern tools that make life easier, much, much easier for, um, you know, for educators. You mentioned the de-risking as well, and it got me thinking about the kind of skill set that's required to, to navigate some of this information and to, to turn it into useful actions for schools as well. Um, with Iris, do you have any kind of um, either your own sort of training programs for for leaders or do you kind of recommend or recognize any that are already out there? Because p- partly this is about sort of, um, you know, data analysis and, um, and, and, and that kind of uh, clever use of information. What we're seeing is with all of that data at the moment, it gets manipulated in spreadsheets or, you know, you have to crunch spreadsheets together or you pull this from one system to another. And the ability to host that information in the cloud and then to uh, be able to interrogate it in a, you know, easy to understand and, and quick way is crucial to being able to make those decisions. And we've invested heavily in our, our uh, analytics platform called Iris Analytics, which pulls all of those bits of information together and uh, frankly, if you needed too much training on it, I think we would have failed yeah. uh, because we, we want to try and make this as simple and as easy to use. And what we're seeing is actually that we're having to give less and less training to people now because the tools are consumer grade experience. You know, we have automated reports that you press a button and it runs the report and pulls all the information together. And and you're then spending time focused on the decision you're making rather than is this number correct and is that number correct? And how do those two things bring together? So um, obviously we do do training if people want it, uh, but we're trying to make tools that are um, really, really intuitive to use. And that's uh, that's what we're focused on at the moment. And having the data available to be able to do that is, is obviously crucial. And have you got any other examples of like multi-academy trusts or other independent schools that are doing a really effective job at using software or using technology in a way that begets all of those benefits that we talked about? 
I mean, we've got well over 40 schools using the the infrastructure that we've got uh, in our new cloud platform. And uh, for example, uh, I was speaking to a, a multi-academy trust leader who needed to pull together all the information to do their Ofsted reports uh, quite recently. Um, and it, it took them a couple of hours to pull it all together and put it in the right format and hand it over rather than the days it would have taken of, of kind of pulling spreadsheets together and pulling information. Um, so I think that's been... Yeah, that was hours that was given back to the school, and and clearly the you know the um, the ability to provide that and, and put it forwards has been really really helpful for them, as well as things like submitting censuses uh, and doing that sort of work um, made much much easier with the kind of tools and technology that that we've got available now. And just generally speaking, because there's been obviously this huge shift, I'm kind of keen to get an understanding of how Iris sees pre-pandemic education and use of technology, what what that looked like. And, and and now, how things have evolved, what people are asking for that's different. I think there's probably three big shifts, to be honest. I mean, we touched on earlier the fact that lots of information has been locked under the desk. You know, MIS systems, 70% of schools are, as I say, have got their information locked under the desk. So that shift to cloud and the, the benefits that come from having the information available in any time to teachers on their apps or to senior leaders in in, uh, in sort of reports that will bring lots of schools together. That shift to cloud, I think, really, really important. Um, and I think we've only started to scratch the surface, if I'm honest, of the potential benefits of that. And as we start to move to cloud, more and more of those uh, those benefits will, will manifest themselves. And that probably brings me on to the second benefit, which is around automation. You know, being able to, you know, automation has the potential to be this potentially you know, scary, scary thing. And uh, I, I don't think it is at all. I think just freeing time up to allow teachers to be able to spend time doing what they're there to do, which is, you know, teach students um, and not do the administration around reporting and, um, and attendance and, and grade marking and the rest of it, and to make that as easy as possible. Uh, we've got a lot of automation in our EdGen product, which allows teachers to be able to do that. And um, I think I read an Ofsted report recently that said 50% of teachers spend less than half their time actually in the classroom and the other half is spent doing admin tasks. And then that final point, which really is about the, you know, the diversion of energy. We we just see the technology available to be able to to free up a huge amount of time there and be able to give that back to educators to do what it is they they they, they want to do. Yeah, no, I, I completely subscribe to that idea. I was speaking at this thing on Friday and um that, you know, my advice would be that rather than seeing computing and automation as this scary thing, it's just like it's that it can actually be quite boring but useful. So, you know, choose a narrow task that is repetitive, um, that a computer can do better and put your creative capabilities to something much more, much more impactful. I mean, just to give you a very sort of mundane example of that, um, I was talking to a Matt Lee the other day and um they process nearly 30,000 invoices a month. I mean, it's wow. huge, right? You know, invoices for everything that the, the group of schools buys. And, um, you know, they employ a couple of people to process that. And um, we have a tool called Iris Invoice Matcher, which allows you to, you know, optically look at invoices and, uh, you know, um, check them off against purchase orders on the system. You know, that saves a couple of people's time every month in order to be able to then focus on tasks that, let's face it, are going to add a lot more value to the school day. And I think that point about automation, about just picking some of those hugely repetitive, non-value-add tasks, um, automating them and giving that time back to, um, you know, to people within schools. I think for me, that's, that gets me out of bed. It's really, you know, really the ability to change, change the school environment. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think I think in this age of, of lockdown and hopefully we're sort of slightly more out of that. But um, 
you know, it, everything can become quite task driven, which isn't hugely satisfying for the human psyche, I don't think. So, you know, when when it is just literally admin tasks. So, um, yeah, I think anything that can can relieve that and allow us to have those conversations, come up with new creative ideas and implement them is great. You know, no no one wants to ask to fill out more forms, do they? So, you know. No, no, they definitely don't. And, and the more that we can use technology to speed that up, um, uh, we were demonstrating, as I mentioned, at EdGen to um, uh, to some teachers the other day, and uh, one of them was filling out uh, attendance tracking. We were showing them how how it was all done, and there was this kind of wow moment, and went, "Wow, this is going to save me hours a month." And you know, it's that, as I say, not somebody who doesn't work in the classroom, but who sees the benefit that modern tools can provide on the day. Um, that's, you know, I think that encourages all of us in Iris to uh, to, to do more of this. And. When you're having those conversations with leaders as well, are they are they sort of signalling any major change in the uh, school community and how perhaps that has become a bit more transparent with, um, like we talked about earlier, with parents now able to communicate that flow of information? Um, just wondering how how they're thinking about that and how technology may have a part in bringing all those stakeholders together a bit better. Uh, yes, and actually, we're seeing it both ways, um, both from governors' boards and and the, and the kind of things that get asked for of school boards, uh, as well as the communication out to parents and to students themselves. And yeah, we touched earlier on. Uh, I think because of the pandemic, the ability for schools to engage much more easily with parents. You touched earlier on on video parents' evening. Uh, we've recently launched our our video parents' evening manager as part of our um, Iris Reach communications tools. Um, and we're seeing huge interest in it because it, it means you know you can continue to communicate in uh, in an environment that people are now more happy with in the um, in, in kind of a video environment. And you don't have to get into school, but obviously what flows with that is a lot more information around what your child's been doing, you know what's gone on the curriculum, what things they're succeeding at, what things they need help with. So we've definitely seen engagement more from that perspective. Uh, what we've also seen um, is the the questions that are coming from from governors as well around how schools are performing you know where are risks um how are we getting on with the the performance against our uh, resources that we're using so if we're putting this much money into this department and this much money into this department you know why are we seeing uh attainment differences on the back of it and actually as you start to pull that information together you start to to be able to provide a much richer insight as to how best to use the you know, limited resources that schools have. Um, and I think that that ability of technology to bring all of the various stakeholders that make a school effective together, um, yeah, it's really powerful. You obviously have a lot of these conversations and um, you hear quite a lot of uh, feedback from uh, from various kind of MAT leaders and others. What, what is your view on some of the trends and some of the challenges that they're, they're facing? So I think uh, I saw an article that you're involved with um... And I think that summarised it, it well. It's 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 time and budget. So yeah, those come up time and again. I think I think that we're sort of halfway through, probably like the heavy lifting into some of the schools actually getting digital systems in place. And now it's about you know rather than digit digitization, just like getting everything up and and having the content available. It's like making sure that those systems are leveraged to the best capabilities and part partly that's um yeah around transparency of what is available so like not having just one gatekeeper or one owner of those systems and it being like a skill set across the whole school 
So mm. previously you'd have your network manager or, you know, and in a lot of cases, there isn't actually a specific person responsible for some of these transformation projects. And so that in itself is can be a barrier, I think. Uh, that's an interesting point. And I think that's something, I think that's something industry needs to solve, mm. you know, because if we engage with uh, even government departments, there's generally a big change team that sits on on the other side of the table that can help you implement whatever it is you're doing, right? Schools, you're sat talking to the finance manager, you know, the CFO, if it's a big matter, COO, but not big change teams. And I think yeah. certainly Iris and others, we need to really uh, make sure that we give confidence that we can flow the right people in to make make those changes happen. Yeah, absolutely. Like I did this <laughs> randomly. Um, it got pushed back until after I had the baby. So that was an interesting challenge. But I did this report for um, some universities in the US and it was um, and a digital transformation partner. And you know, part of the success of those programs just came down to having a dedicated person that would push that that forward and 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 bring and convene everyone. And I think when when that role isn't there, it's very difficult. And I think it, it, even in terms of starting these projects, because there's this understanding that there's an opportunity cost for everything that you do. So you know, I'm not going to do ten projects this year. I'm going to do one. And then we're going to do one well. And even that is like a big commitment. So yeah. um, whether there can be someone sort of almost outsourced on a consultancy basis from the company to help um, implement implement what you're doing um, or, or a model like that, I think that would be quite interesting. But um yeah, but I think I think now the big the big thing that is it's not such a longer term educational process because now everyone's seen why why they need things and yeah. yeah and that was that was exactly what I saw from that Matt leader you know the other day you know he talked eloquently about what the benefits of this were going to be his own concern was how we got there um you know it, we almost didn't need to sell the product and its outcomes it was blindingly obvious to them it was just how we we de-risk the, the getting there yeah and I think the problem is now we're back into immediacy and people worrying about Ofsted again and um catch up and these big pressures that have been put on schools now it's sort of um kind of re sort of re-amalgamating in its new form I think how do you do these longer term projects when you've got these issues so again if it's sometimes it's like helping make the space to allow that to happen and and as someone that sort of worked across lots of different sectors and I'm a big believer that looking sideways to other areas of work can always help inform what you're doing are there any kind of books project big thinkers that have influenced how you approach your work um th there is actually and i um i'm quite a big uh fan of satya nadella the guy the chief executive of microsoft uh i read his book uh, a little while ago actually but um he he talks very much about um bringing the soul back into microsoft and yeah, Microsoft had become, you know, obviously a behemoth with its, uh, you know, its its software and tools across the globe. Um, and he talks very much about shifting back to why technology is important and how it can make the lives of people better. And he starts the book with a really heartfelt, uh, you know, reflection on his own background and his children and all the rest of it. And I really took that to heart because I'm a big believer in the fact that technology can be you know truly uh, transformative for, for for society and indeed for education if we get it right um so yeah I, I took quite a lot of inspiration from that and um it was a theme that that sits very well with me where were you born and what was your kind of uh sort of influence at a young age 
Well, I am um, actually born in Shropshire in, in the UK. Uh, so I had a slightly idyllic but um, rural background uh, and I was always interested in technology, um, breaking things, mending things, all that kind of stuff, which, which led me to be an, an engineer. Um, uh, so that was quite a big uh, kind of, you know, that, that engineering background I think I take with me in my, in my working career. Um, but it has led me to have a, you know, the kind of interest in technology I have today. And I was fortunate enough early in my career to spend quite a bit of time in India. And I actually worked out in India for a while. And um, you mentioned about mobile payments. And one of the projects I was involved in out there was improving um, connectivity across rural India. And this was the late noughties when really the, uh, I guess, the use of technology across mobile phones was really taking off and, and the need to have not just a voice connection, but a data connection. Uh, and I was there and part of the project we're doing was installing mobile connectivity across India. Yeah. And um, the, the transformation of people in rural India to be able to receive mobile payments from children and relatives across the globe. These are people who literacy wasn't very high, probably didn't own a bank account uh, and were able to receive mobile payments. I mean, you know, it probably was minor stuff to us in Western world and the technology we had, but it was transformative to the time I saw out there. And um, yeah, I think those experiences really shaped me. And that's probably why Satya Nadella's book, uh, you know, really resonated with me yeah. that actually, you know, technology can be used to make some really impressive, um, impressive changes to society. Brilliant. Obviously, last year, there was a huge influx and in investment into EdTech. Your observation on the EdTech market is a really interesting one. And it's um, it, probably one of the most exciting technology markets I've seen for quite a while. And if I look at I guess things that Iris has been involved in and indeed things that others have been involved in, there's a real mixture of some of these problems trying to be solved by some of the big tech players. So the Google classrooms, you know, Microsoft technology, Amazon as well. Um, but there's also a huge amount of brilliant startups. So people who've been in education and have been kind of uh, in the classroom every day and go, hang on, here's a problem that I want to solve um, and then solving it brilliantly. And that being then, um, you know, growing and then being picked up by by private businesses like, like Iris, um, and then being nurtured and, and grown further and actually plugged together with some other tool, tools. Uh, and we've seen a real consolidation in in the sector as I think that's gone on over the last uh, certainly the last twenty four months certainly. And but I think it's been a bit of history for a while. And I think Iris is really well positioned to be able to do that kind of stuff. You know, we've uh, we have bought a number of businesses, but they're businesses that are complementary to the ones that sit next to them and um, we're in a position now where through the iris product suite um, everything from engaging with parents to tracking and managing your finances to running the back office administration in your schools to be able to run hr to be able to run payroll you know we can provide all of that and back to the things we talked about earlier the ability to have a real insight and real understanding of what's going on across the school and be able to make much better decisions um, that's the stuff that's going to make huge difference, I think, to the school of the future. And uh, Iris is really well positioned to be able to do that through the product suites that we bought. Um, but we're also, you know, we keep looking, we see some incredible innovations that come up in the education sector. And uh, yeah, we'll, we will keep looking mm. and probably keep acquiring for the, the right things that we see. There's probably a few startups listening in who are like, oh. <laughs> please feel free to reach out i'm more than happy to have a conversation with you so yeah yeah um and 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 what you do it your customer base your schools that you look after is that international as well it is so uh we cover just over twelve thousand schools um 
the majority of which are in the UK. Um, but as part of the Iris family, we have a company called ISAMS who provide the management information systems for uh, independent and international schools. And uh, they're doing a fantastic job in uh, transforming some of the international schools um, with modern cloud-based payroll um, uh, MIS systems. Uh, and uh, we're seeing huge, huge growth and huge interest in, uh, in that product and some really, really positive customer feedback. And then I've got here, you know, one of the questions we always ask on our on our guest form is, um, what's the biggest myth or foe in education or technology you would like to see corrected? I think it's a foe. And I think it's that thing that we just t- we, we touched on earlier, which is the amount of information that gets generated in a school on a daily basis from the second that registration starts in the morning until the minute the lights go out. You know, there's this huge pattern of information and um being able to have that information at your hands and make sure it's not locked under a desk in an old MIS software that isn't uh, isn't cloud based and that data isn't accessible, or if it is accessible, it's not accessible in a in an easy to consume format. Um, for me, that is the foe that I would like uh, I would like us to be able to uh, to overcome. Uh, and you know, other bits of of, of, go- of government and public sector have overcome it. Uh, and I think education uh, and education establishments is the next place to do that. And um, that's the mission Iris is on: Un- unlocking your data and making better decisions. I mean, that is kind of sometimes quite breathtaking. I, I saw on a um, an early uh, uh, survey, twenty six percent of respondents of these are schools have a have an online payment system. So that's quite a lot that don't. Um, and it made me think because, um, again, a sort of school locally, you know, they they were still using checks. And then it got me thinking, well, you know, you've got now Gen Z parents. So, uh, you know, I scraped the millennial bracket, but like the next generation below that, if they've had children in their in their early 20s, you know, they are not going to be engaging with with checks and um, and and kind of that old school um, way of, of payment. So I think also for schools, this is part of um, governance as well. So making sure that some of these younger stakeholders, that their way of engaging with the school and school community is reflected in terms of governance, in terms of the tools that are used and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, we've got uh, in Iris, we've probably got four million families um, who are connected to to us th- through the app. Uh, we transact probably nearly fifteen million pounds uh, every month on on the payment processing. But you're right; I mean, that's quite a small proportion of the total schools that they use it. And we are very focused on trying to make that um, school and parent experience as consumer grade as possible. Uh, because that's what people expect and uh, you know it's time saving and it's secure and it's uh, convenient and it means and it's you know it's safe for, um, for the school to use and I think that we very much see that as a uh, as a huge uh, area for the future as I say it's um, it's an area that we we already sit in with our um, Paramail and, and Iris Reach products um, but there's definitely a lot a lot more that can come from that. You're responsible especially for MATS and independent schools. And in terms of procurement, I was wondering how you see the structure of multi-academy trusts and how that's influencing just general um, procurement processes with, with schools, so how they buy and deliver some of their services. Some listeners will be outside of those structures, but what what's the sort of general trend you're getting in, t- in terms of how schools go about thinking about procuring ed tech of any kind? 
Uh, it's a really interesting question. And I think certainly as somebody who's probably spanned the kind of public procurement in the past and seen, if I'm really honest, quite risk averse decision making, and, and actually sometimes a race to the bottom, uh, i.e. becomes very much a price dependent yeah. uh, procurement decision versus what I'm seeing now. And we're seeing in the procurement approach from Oz Academy Trust, where it's a much more rounded decision around what is the best value and not necessarily always measured in pricing, but actually what are the services we can derive and actually what are the onward benefits that the MAC can, can deliver from engaging with companies like Iris and, and, and the products that we've got. Um, so I, if I'm honest, I see much more sophisticated decision-making and the freedoms that, um, that Matt's have around to making their own procurement decisions. I mean, clearly they need to demonstrate value for money and clearly they need to demonstrate uh, good corporate governance. Um, but I think that can only be a good thing if the decisions are ones that are absolutely aligned to the needs of the leadership team and, and the best outcomes for the school. And certainly we see um, uh, we see that more in, in the multi-academy trust sector. And and off the back of that, I used to hear that schools want the, you know, they're doing one big procurement and they want it to do everything. And then now you're hearing, OK, but the, the good application of, of technology is like a particular task and making sure that it does that one thing really well. So what are you seeing from the from the leaders that you speak to in terms of that balance between not continually making investment choices because they want add on products and services, but then at the same time, making sure that the things that they invest in do individual tasks really well? It's exactly the right question to be asked by but by senior leaders. So, you know, how do I get the best point solution for this specific service? But at the same time, I don't want to have to procure fifty individual services and and put the onus on me on joining them all together. Uh, and certainly, the conversations that I've been having with Matt leaders is that, uh, hey, Iris, you know, we want to see you investing in this technology. We want to see you demonstrate that you're, uh, you know, you're best in class of being able to deliver. Uh, be it HR services or finance services or or parent engagement, um, but we'd really like to just work with you as one contract rather than having lots of different engagements with different organisations. And if I'm honest, that's probably driven a huge part of our uh, our growth strategy and our investment strategy is to make sure that we have got best in class products and that we can provide them uh, across the the needs that schools facing and. Uh, and that we can demonstrate that to the market. And that, that obviously makes the procurement process and the, the management of partners much easier if you're dealing with uh, you know one organisation like Iris rather than lots of individual ones and having to uh, make all their products jo- join up. So if you're a school leader listening in and you have an idea of what you want, get in touch. <laughs> Absolutely, we are all ears, uh, and we would uh, we'd love to know. You know, what are the challenges that you're facing? Uh, what are the uh, what are the things that are frustrating your school day? Uh, we hope we've got a solution for it at the moment, but uh, if we haven't, and we can work together on uh, on solving it, we'd love to do that. And I think some of the best ideas we've had for our product sets has come from that really close engagement that we have with customers. Um, you know, we have active user forums, we have active uh, engagement, and um, uh, some of the, as I say, some of the best ideas have come from the feedback there, and uh, we definitely haven't got all the answers. So, if people want to put stuff forward, then we'd be absolutely love, love to hear about it. Excellent. Um, so, final question: uh, What do you like to do outside of education and technology to keep energized? So, <laughs> um, I run, but very slowly. Uh, I'm not a very, not a very fast runner. Uh, is it, is it, is it got... flat or hilly where you live? 
Uh, it's, um, uh, I'm sorry, so there's actually more hills than I would like, if I'm honest. So I'm definitely even slower up the hills. Yeah. But uh, yeah, l- love, to, love to run a bit. Uh, and um, we've got um, uh, we've got just over a one-year-old. One so um, uh, I'm increasingly being involved in the world of uh, soft play and, uh, and things like that. So that's been keeping me very busy uh, over more recent weekends. That keeps me busy enough. And I, I tend to take on the odd occasional building project. Um, but uh, my DIY is not very good. So I probably shouldn't uh, probably shouldn't put that on the on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Awesome. OK, well, Simon, thank you so much for um, sharing what you've been up to. And best of luck with the, the rest of your first year at, at Iris Education and having all those fantastic conversations out there and um you know putting that all back into what you're developing and um if anyone's listening do get in touch yeah hopefully this is uh giving you those those ideas about navigating constant change so thanks again and uh yeah look forward to releasing this one wonderful thank you so it's been an absolute pleasure uh thank you for some uh very insightful questions and uh, it's been a pleasure to be here Thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you also to Simon for being such a super guest and uh, very humble and honest about his new and exciting journey in education and sharing his experience of chatting to education leaders. Don't forget, if you want to feedback to Simon or on this episode, uh, you can do so at speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast or tweet us at podcast EdTech. You can also find out more at iris.co.uk forward slash education. What else in this outro? Um, We should also mention we've got a new guest blog by the Swedish learning psychologist Martin Hasler Halstead. The blog is all about making everyone an I am a maths person using cognitive behavioural therapy, advanced gaming technology and screen time limits. So, what is game-embedded teaching? Here's Martin explaining more to whet your appetite. So, I think uh, game-embedded teaching should not only like reduce anxiety when learning, but also make learning a joy and create positive learning memories that last for life. Because I don't remember anything good about my first school years. <laughs> Barely anything. We want to create really memories from learning at an early early age using game embedded teaching. So I would say a key aspect of uh, game embedded teaching is that all teaching is validated by science. So it has to have a like demonstrated a real effect on learners' performance as measured by the standardized test. However, game embedded teaching also measures emotional outcomes, such as effects on maths anxiety. I did um, a lot of research into this field uh, starting in 2011 when I started my doctoral thesis at Uppsala University in Sweden. And uh, that's when I started with game design, a very, I would say, more gamification at that time, uh, to see that you can actually get students pretty hooked uh, or captivated by learning at a rapid pace with lots of feedback. Math, math is really important. Like uh, looking at historical data running from the 1960s, you can see that 35 to 50% of uh, gross domestic product uh, improvement in a country is dependent on the pupils' maths and science performance. So it has huge impact on the economy, it drives the economy basically. And math is also looking at uh, longitudinal data, like you follow uh, persons from their born up to age of 30, 
you can see that math is actually a stronger predictor, even than literacy, on outcomes such as mental health, uh, physical health, uh, infringement. I believe the future of edtech and games will be about the user experience. So it's, I think it's about time to focus on improving the child's user experience, as well as the experience of parents and teachers, of course. And it's easy to spot, I think, for everyone, that games are just a fantastic way of bringing a captivating user experience. Brilliant. So if all that sounds of interest, go and check out the edtechpodcast.com forward slash blog, where you'll see Martin's full thoughts and the extended version of that recording. And what's coming up? We've got more episodes coming up on tech for workplace skills and also new education models. So make sure you're subscribed and we would love if you go and also give us a rate or review or share this episode so that others can find out about the podcast. That's all for this week. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're listening to this, take care and see you next time. Bye bye.